0: morning, MCBC. Those of you who are here, those who are joining us online, if if it's been some time since you've been here or if you're joining us for the first time, uh, I probably should just catch you up a little bit. We have been working our way through the gospel of Mark. Why Mark? Well, Mark is the first written record we have of the life, the ministry, the words of Jesus. Why read that at all? Because there are so many impersonations, so much misinformation about Jesus, and so much hope is attached to what it might mean to have Jesus in our life, wouldn't it make sense to start as close as we can to the genuine article, to read the stories of those who knew him best, who spent their lives in daily contact with him, to hear the firsthand testimony, which is what Mark gives us. Mark is a great economist of words. So this is not a long gospel. Uh, It's not filled up with a lot of flowery extra verbiage. Mark gets right to the point. And so here we are in the first chapter of Mark. This is actually the fourth week we've been in Mark. But today, for the first time, we get to hear Jesus' voice. Today, he speaks. And boy, he doesn't pull any punches. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus... The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is here. It's close. Repent. Turn around. Change your lives. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. And then immediately after those first words leave his mouth comes the invitation. Come on and follow me. And I will make you what? Fishers of men. Let's hold on to that kind of cryptic language. Now, I want us to understand that this is this is virtually unique in the ancient world. It, no rabbi went out like this recruiting students. That would seem kind of undignified. Rabbis didn't choose their pupils. Pupils sought out a teacher to live under. We do the same thing, right? Every year around, well kind of right now, a bunch of frantic college and university students start filling out their applications, and they put them out there with their best foot forward, hoping that the the teacher, the college, the institution of their choice will say yes and and receive them in. It's It's the student who looks for the teacher. You will never find in the, in, in the New Testament world or in the history of the Old Testament, wise leaders intentionally going out there and, and recruiting people. You don't see Moses do it or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah. Students sought out a rabbi. But, but Jesus is, well, if nothing else, he's humble. But more than just that, he's proactive, This is entirely God's initiative. Even this opening stage where we think, well, uh, I'm going to seek out God. No, it didn't begin that way. It began with with God seeking out you. This is his initiative. And this this short little passage where we begin to unpack the call of God, what does it mean to be called, to be invited by God, Uh, I want to take you through four different features of what that call is like. Here's the first. It's different. We've already alluded to that. It's profoundly different than anything else that was out there. Not just different, it's drastic. There's something radical about this, and you sense the radicalness even in these opening few verses where the call comes abruptly, assertively, and the response is immediate, and they left everything behind and they went. It's drastic. But thirdly, it's developmental. It doesn't happen all at once. God doesn't call you and suddenly become complete, ready to go. Even university students have to spend their time in university before they graduate. So it's different, it's drastic, it's developmental, but here's the last thing. It's doable, it's achievable, and it's worth it. Let's talk about what's so different about the call of Jesus. And, And it revolves entirely around two words that are there in that opening section of Mark's gospel. So if you have Mark open with me, turn in Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 15. Jesus says, repent and believe the what? The good news. Good news, another word for the good news is the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. That sounds like kind of a a churchy word, a religious word. I I promise you that when, when Jesus used it, it was not. It was a word that had real currency in that world, and it wasn't necessarily meant to be sacred or religious. In fact, it was a compound word. It was two words kind of wedged together. The word, uh, the word we translate gospel is evangel or euangelos, um, evangelical. You know that word, evangelize. But it's two words. One is angelos, angel, angel, a messenger or a message. So what is this? This is a message. Or something being given by a messenger, what kind of message a little prefix u e u which means good. you go to a funeral, and somebody that you trust stands up and they give a eulogy, a good word about the person we 're honoring. What is this? This is good news that 's what gospel means. Quite literally. And again, not a religious word. This was a word that was used commonly in society. For example, we have inscriptions that that we found dating from the same time period. An ancient Roman inscription that starts like this really striking. This is the beginning of the gospel or the good news about Caesar Augustus. Not who you thought, right? This is the story of Caesar Augustus. What does it include? His birth his coronation, and why his coming was good for the world. See, the idea is that that a gospel is a little bit of news, good news, that is somehow history-shaping, and and that, that could be a source of change and change for the better in the world. So, for example, students of history, you know Greece was invaded by Persia. And in one of the great battles between the Greeks and the Persians, the Battle of Marathon. That's where the race came from, by the way. The Battle of Marathon and the great Sea Battle of Salamis. When they won those battles, they sent heralds, evangelists, if you'd like, bearers of the good news, and they ran 26 miles from the battle site back to Greece, to Athens, to, to, to Sparta, to give the good news, the gospel. And here was the gospel. We fought for you, and we won. And now you're free. You're not slaves. You are free. That's what the gospel meant for people who heard that word. The gospel meant something has happened in history. It's been done, and it changes your status. It changes the world forever. That's the word Jesus is using here. Again, not a church word, but a radically world-shaping bit of news. And right there you see a key difference, in fact, the key difference between what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to be an adherent to religion, any religion, or maybe even no religion, the absence of religion. Because because everything that, that sort of falls under the banner of religion is basically a kind of advice, if you'd like. Advice for how to live. Most religions say, basically, this is how you should live. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. These are the things that you need to achieve in order to be saved, whatever saved means. The gospel, the good news that Jesus brings, is basically something has already happened in history. It's already been accomplished. This is the life that Jesus lived. This is the reason he died, so that you might be saved. This is not about advice for things that you need to do. This is good news about something that has been done for you. And there's a big difference, isn't it? Like when you stand in front of somebody who's giving advice, it could be great advice, I mean, here's the way you ought to love your family. Here's the integrity with which you ought to conduct yourself at work. Here, here are the moral standards to which we aspire. And maybe people can communicate it in a great way. And it's very inspiring. And we hold up some heroes or heroines of the faith who, who've modeled it. And we listen to it. And, and how do you feel after you hear all of it? Inspired, maybe? Yeah. Challenged, maybe? But do you feel your burdens being lifted because of that? Does it feel like the anxiety of life is is taken away? Do you feel victorious? Of course you don't. Because this isn't an indication that anything has changed. This is just advice on how you ought to live. And maybe if you're good enough at being that person or living that way, then things will work out for you in the end. The gospel is not about how you must live in order to get God to smile on you. The gospel is that something has happened in history, and it's not based on anything you've done in the past. It's based on something that Jesus has done and accomplished for you. You feel the difference? One is a long checklist, and you have to be able to tick off all the boxes and submit it and hope hope that application gets through heaven's screening process. The other is a piece of paper on which Jesus has written his own name, and you give that, and it's already been achieved. The second reason why the call of Jesus is so utterly different, this word gospel. The other word that's in there, and it's used twice, is the word kingdom. What does it mean to hear the good news about a kingdom, that that somehow God is closer now than he has ever been? Well, we've gone back to Genesis a a couple of times, and it's always a good place to to, to linger if you want to understand why the good news is so good. Genesis, you see that that God's desire, God's intent was to build a world that was beautiful and flourishing uh, and perfect in every way that matters. Psychologically perfect. And people lived full, whole lives, socially unspoiled. Relationships were solid. The relationship we have with ourselves, with other people, with God and nature and and the physical world, and under or over all of it is this idea that, that God is the source and God is the sufficiency and God holds it together, that God is king. And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, I'm not suggesting that any of you ever do this, but boy, if you could tear a page out of the Bible, I'd love to tear out Genesis 3 because that's where it all goes wrong. Genesis 3, we're told, and this is just the story of the human race, that we abandoned all of it. And we chose instead to be the king or the queen of our own domain. We've gone the way of self centeredness. And, and as we did, all the other relationships, they start to unravel. Self centeredness is a thing that destroys all other relationships. It destroys you psychologically. There's nothing that makes you more miserable than being completely self absorbed and obsessed. How am I doing? How are people treating me? Am I getting what I deserve? Am I getting what I'm entitled to? My rights, my, my, mine, mine. Nothing's more miserable than that. And it's psychologically disintegrating. And then it's also socially disintegrating. Because this is a, we talked last week about a solar system where, where everything wants to be the center. That's not a solar system. That's solar chaos. Why do we have class struggle and war and and racism and family breakdown and relationships constantly exploding? It's the darkness of self-absorption. We've decided that each of us were our own king. And everything fell apart. Psychologically, relationally, spiritually. If you study... And some of you I know are fascinated by this. I, I think actually Sheldon's daughter Miriam does a blog about this. But if you study m- myths and, uh, and legends and epics and, and fairy tales across all different cultures, they're, they're different. But there is a theme that weaves their way through. See if you recognize the theme and see if you can locate it in your own culture. Because almost every culture has this. It's the story of a true king. A true king. Or, or, or a real prince, and they will come back. And when they come back, they will slay the dragon or kiss the sleeping princess or wake us from the sleep of death or free us from our, our tower prison. But, but at its heart is this idea that, that the real king will return and put things right. That idea fascinated, among other people, J.R.R. Tolkien, Uh, that was the central theme of his book, the return of the real king. And how will you know, Tolkien says basically this, that the hands of the king are healing hands. That's the way that the real, the rightful king will be known. When you come under royal hands, when you come under the kingship of Jesus, things begin to heal. When he came for the first time, Jesus... He comes in humility. He comes with the cross as his destination. And healing begins to flow. The people who who rub shoulders with him, their lives begin to improve. All people, the most unexpected of people, people who are cast aside and marginalized, healing begins to flow. Physical healing, spiritual healing, healing from brokenness and hopelessness and purposelessness. And then the Bible ends with this this tantalizing promise that when he comes again, the healing will be all-encompassing. Fear will be gone. Suffering will be gone. Tears will be gone. The human race reunified. Poverty gone. Injustice gone. Hunger gone. Disease, death, disfigurement, all gone. And when you get there, this new heaven, new earth. Language begins to fail. Questions grow silent. And and you get the sense that all we're going to be able to say is, "Ah, home at last. This is what we were made for. Here's what's so different about message of Jesus and the call of Jesus. Here's what makes the call so different from all other religions or or, or non-religions. The promise held up by religion is that if you do the right things, that you somehow get whisked away from this world and and taken into whatever grandiose reality you have in mind, oneness with the universe, the cessation of consciousness, Valhalla, or uh, whatever it is. Some religions would even say that the, the material world itself is an illusion. Or if you're not a religious person, you're just a secular person, then you cannot avoid this idea that the only future we really have is eventually... The sun is going to burn up. The death of the sun, and it will take everything with it, and it will be as if we never existed. The Bible says that the world was created by God with intent and design and a future, and he's going to renew it, and the people that he's created, and it's meant to last forever. And those who, those who follow that attitude towards the world they'll have the same attitude towards the body and the world and food and drink. It'll be more positive and more hopeful than any other worldview could possibly afford. See, in Christianity, salvation, it's not about escaping from the world. God, beam me up. Get me out of here. I'm tired of it. It's about the renewal of all things. The purpose of salvation is not to get us out of here. It's to get us deeply rooted where we're at. And it's, it's not just the forgiveness of sins. I mean, of course, of course it's that. And it's not just the salvation of the soul, but yes, it's that. It's also fighting poverty and addressing disease and fighting hunger. All of that is part of God's agenda in the world. So we're called, when Jesus says, come follow me, we're called to live out a gospel that is rooted in the promise that something new is coming. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's different. You feel that? It, it's, it's not just morality. It's not just being good. It's not just about pardon, being forgiven when we weren't good. It's not just being Whisked away into paradise. It's different. It, it's world affirming. It's it's you affirming. It's it's us affirming. It, it, it's absolutely radical. So it's different. It's not just different. Uh, it's also drastic. If you still have your Bibles, look at uh, verses seventeen and eighteen with me. Mark chapter one it goes to Peter, Simon, Andrew, and Jesus says, "Come, follow me." And all at once, immediately. They left their nets and they followed him. Wow. Hmm. Then he goes to James and John, verses 19 and 20. Same thing. Follow me. This time they leave behind their father, Zebedee. Leave him right there in the boat. Bye, Dad. (laughs) Now, listen, we know from reading the rest of the Gospels, it's not like they never fished again. They did go fishing again. It's not like they never saw their family again. What is it, though, that Jesus is saying here that is so radical? It seems to me that in our culture, at least, which tends to be individualistic, saying goodbye to our parents maybe is not a big deal, but having Jesus say, I want priority over your career, leave it behind, come follow me, that's the radical part of the message. In traditional cultures, it would have been the opposite. Your career was far less important than your family, your tribe, your mom, your dad. That's where you get your identity. And so when Jesus says, I want priority even over your family, that's drastic. That's drastic. It's a way of saying, resembling me, apprenticing to me, serving with me, knowing me. This this must be the great priority of your life. Everything else is going to have to be reprioritized to maximize what we're going to achieve together. Everything else comes second. In fact, discipleship, whatever else that word might might mean, the following of Jesus, has everything to do with Reordering priorities. Right away, um, people read this, people, people who are outside of the church. And there's something about this that, that comes across as just a little bit fanatical. Leave it all behind parents, career, come follow me. Expecting a response that's immediate. Jesus, the dictator. Of course, we would never use that word. But one of the great barriers that I think people face when they they consider MCBC or, or, or a life rooted in Jesus, when they consider Christianity, is that fanaticism has left a bad taste in the mouths of the world. You look out and you see the acts of violence, of atrocious hatred being done by highly religious people, with these strong, religiously motivated beliefs. You don't even have to go looking for something that drastic. All of you know, I know, we know, somebody in our life who either personally or by reputation, they're, they're extremely religious. They're also extremely self-righteous, very unaccommodating, intemperate, almost abusive in the way they relate to other people. I think that is the caricature that a lot of people will carry of religious folk, of Jesus people. If anything, maybe they think of Christianity on a spectrum, but it's not a good spectrum. On the one end are the hypocrites, those who say it but don't do anything to make you believe that they actually live it. On the other end are the fanatics, hypocrites, fanatics, again, terrible spectrum. And We think, well, maybe we should just land somewhere in between. We can be the the moderates. We're not going to overbelieve and overlive, but we're also uh, we're not going to fall victim to the trap of hypocrisy. So it might seem wise to ask, why can't we just live in the middle? You know, moderation in all things. Christianity is star- strong drink. You need to cut it with a little bit of water. You can't just consume it full go. Christians need to lighten up. Is that what Jesus said? Come, follow me. But remember, moderation in all things. Jesus is going to answer this for himself. He says something very, very similar to what's here in Mark. Keep your finger in Mark. Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, verses 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd. Listen to what he says. He says, if anyone comes to me, does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be his disciple. How moderate is that? You see, if anyone comes to me, if, if, if anyone, this side of the spectrum, that side of the spectrum, there's no double standard here. He turns to the crowd and says, I want you to follow me so intensely, so comprehensively, so supremely and emotionally and, and enduringly that all the other attachments in your life, they pale in comparison. I don't think Jesus wants you to go and scream hatred at your parents. But in comparison, priority-based to what you have with Jesus, this is going to drift and it. it It might even look like hatred in comparison. It's just to love less. But if you say, listen, I'll obey you, Jesus, so long as things are going okay. I want my career to go right. I want my health to go right. I want my family to be right. If it's not going right, something has obviously gone wrong. Either in the message or in you. Anytime you say, I will follow you if, I will follow you if, whatever is on the other side of that if, turns out that's going to be your real master. That's going to be your real goal. And Jesus won't be hemmed in like that. Jesus is is not going to be used as a means to some other end. If you're going to follow me, Jesus says. The king. I'll be the goal. You don't come to me just because it's trendy. You don't come to me because you've heard that if you go through a 10-point program, it'll make you a better person. You don't come to me Because I'll make you happy. You come to me because I am the one true king. I am the source of burning strength and joy. I am the true Lord, the true life, the true way. I am your true end. So, what about the whole fanaticism thing? Remember what we said about religion in general. In religion, you believe you have a connection to God, you have a right to to be with God because you've done the right things and lived the right way. Religion is basically a device, how you should live. In this state, the inclination, the very strong inclination, is to feel superior to other people who don't have the right beliefs, who don't live the right way. And if you feel superior to them, you will avoid them, or you will caricature them, or you will exclude them, or abuse them, or oppress them, or yes, even kill them. And don't you think we see that happening every day in the daily news? If you believe in the gospel of Jesus, you understand the difference between advice and good news, something that that you're expected to do and something that has already been done. And if at any level you can acknowledge that that you're standing before God is an act of sheer grace, you'll never be able to look at somebody with a different worldview And see them the same way. Because you know you serve a Savior who died for them as much as He died for you. Not because you had right belief and right behavior. How in the world could you possibly feel superior? And suddenly you begin to realize something fanatics are not fanatics because they've gone too far and are too committed to Jesus, they're fanatics because they didn't go nearly far enough. they missed what they were, most, were to be most fanatical about. That is the life, the character, the goal, the whole trajectory of Jesus. So it's different. It's drastic. It's developmental. That sounds like more of an education word than a church word, but it's a good word. Look at verse 17 here. Um, I'm going to do, I mean, I hate doing this, but I love doing it. I'm going to point out a, a, a place here where we're sometimes reading the Bible in a language other than the one that it was written in can be a problem. And I hate doing that because I realize that most of us, myself included, are not fluent in the language of the Bible. But sometimes... I don't know, sometimes reading the Bible in a language not your own is like kissing your wife through a veil. And uh, we're just going to lift the veil here for a second. Verse 17, you have it in your translation, I have it in mine. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Is that how you have it? That or something like that. There is a word missing in that phrase. Uh, or a word that at least is not fully translated. And I understand why, because when you put it in there, it just doesn't sound right in English. But when you take it out, you miss something critically important. So here it is, word for word. Come follow me, and I will make you to become as fishers of men. Do you feel the difference? The idea of following as a journey, not an instantaneous transaction. Jesus isn't stationary. He doesn't say, come check in with me. I'll give you the material. I'll certify you. And then you're on your way. You're a fisher of men. Take your net. Take your Bible. Go to work. Now, this is a journey. This is developmental. We do it together. There's a process to this. You don't become a fisher of men on the spot. I'm gonna put you in process with me. And this is this is gonna be lifelong. That's the journey. What's the goal? Is it fishers of men? Well, maybe it is. But what does that mean? Fishers of men. I used to read that and you read that too, and I probably thought this is Jesus being clever, being contextual. He's down there on the docks among the fishermen with the fishing boats. He's trying to find out a way to link into their story. He says, I will make you fishers of men. That fits. And if he'd been in the carpenter's shop, he, he might have said, I will make you builders of God's kingdom. That one fits. Or to the farmers, I will make you sowers of good news. Or, I don't know, to the TikTokers out there, I will make you influencers for God, you know, whatever it is. But here's the thing. Uh, This isn't just about context. There's a deeper meaning to this. In in biblical imagery, in Hebrew symbolism, the sea, the water, is always a place of chaos, of death and and darkness, of coldness. It it, it represents that that idea of being lost. What's wrong What is it that makes the kingdom of darkness dark, chaotic? Well, we kind of hinted at it. Self-absorption, a world filled with people driven by their own agenda. Something that's destroying them psychologically. What makes you brood? What makes you feel self-pity? What makes you feel absorbed? Me, 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 me. It's the thing that's destroying us. What's Jesus saying here? I will make you fishers of men. I will make you someone who knows What it takes to draw people out of darkness and place them in the light. Can you imagine Jesus saying something like that? Sure, you can, because in fact he did. You are the light of the world, he said. But it doesn't happen instantly. I'm afraid sometimes when you reduce what Jesus is doing to a simple transaction, unsaved, now saved, stamp the papers, you're on your way, certified, good to go, Fisher of Men. What happens when on day three of your journey you realize that some of those old habits that were with you on day minus one are still there? Did something go wrong? Did Jesus fail you? Did you fail Jesus? Was it all rubbish? No. It's a journey. It's a journey. And if there is good news, well, big part of the good news is that, to grab our junior high theologians, you're not alone in it. You don't do it alone. The invitation, come follow me, is an invitation to do life with Jesus. And those, those early disciples, those first fishermen who said yes and set it aside and went with them, they had no idea where Jesus was going to take them. Probably if they did, they might have been a little bit more reluctant to go. But go they did. And within a few months, they were running for their lives, failing, betraying. But, but all of those were experiences through which Jesus was shaping them. They were being developed into fishers of men. When you, have, when you have that early experience of Jesus in your life, and it's rich and it's beautiful, you have no idea how far Jesus is going to take you and what he might take you through. And he might take you to some places that, that for the life of you, you cannot figure out why he would place you there. Some places you absolutely don't want to go and part of what he's doing is shaping you into fissures of men. The disciples must have had no idea that it was going to be this hard. And it was hard. But if your ministry is going to be working in a world where there is darkness, grabbing people and bringing them into light, there's nothing about that that sounds like it ought to be easy. It's different. It's drastic. It's developmental. And then let's just end by saying this in case you're really disenchanted and willing to give up. It's doable. It's doable. Here's how it works. Jesus says, come follow me. You know what he means? He says, we're going to do this together. We're going to go on a journey. I want you to stick with me. And as we work on it together and as we get the priorities right, you just keep doing what you can do. Keep praying. Keep obeying as much of my will as you understand at the time. And over the course of the journey, I'm going to shape you into fissures of men. I'm going to take you places you never thought you would go. And you're going to say, Jesus, why in the world are we here? It feels like a dead end. How can we do this? How can you do it? In some ways, the answer is as simple as it is profound you do it because we see that Jesus has done it and he's going to do it with us. When you see him calling James and John out of their boat, remember, he had already left his father's throne. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. That great line from one of our beautiful hymns. And he's... He's going to, in his own life, plunge headlong into the greatest dead end you can imagine, into the abyss of the cross and and infinite loss and hell itself. But here's the thing. The kingship of Jesus will not crush you. Instead, it's a reminder that he was crushed for you. In the end, what makes it doable, what makes it infinitely worthwhile, is the one that we are doing it with. We are following him. And remember, he followed the thread of his life into hell so that you could follow the thread of yours right into his arms. And maybe, just maybe, you get to call some people with you as fishers of men. I invite our worship team to join me on the stage and as we prepare to celebrate the good news, the gospel of Jesus at this place that he so powerfully and poignantly asked us to remember him. As we do that, let's spend a few minutes in prayer. We thank you, King Jesus, for a call that comes into our life. It wasn't our initiative, it was yours. And God, we thank you that, that the call is to join you, to follow you, not, not just a set of ideas or rules, but to follow you. And God, we know that there are days when it will be hard. And we know that we've not yet arrived at the place that ultimately you have in mind for us. It's a lifelong journey. But God, we trust you in this. We know that we can do it because of you, because of what you have done for us. We know that we're not alone. And we know that you have that you've caught us up and called us into the greatest enterprise the world could possibly offer, fishers of men, those who reach into the darkness and the chaos and invite people to you into the light. We thank you, Jesus, the light of the world. Amen.